Hey everyone, great to be back. We have another fantastic author on the show today. Uh, it was tough to get a hold of him just because he's extremely busy. I'm very grateful that despite rescheduling, he was able to carve out some time, and that is Al Ramadan. Al Ramadan is the founder and CEO of Play Bigger and co-author of the book Play Bigger: How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. Now you know that I reviewed the book. For those of you who don't, the reason why I'm so interested in speaking to Al is because many years ago, back in 2014-2015, I read the marketing classic it's really the bible of marketing the 22 immutable laws of marketing by al Rees and jack trout it's published about 40 years ago and one of the chapters they talk about is about creating a category and their thing is when they evaluated the best companies in the world that you should not waste time trying to enter an existing category and compete with the category king right or queen to that matter whatever you want to go with um they recommend creating your own category. So I got really obsessed with this idea of category creation and market engineering. And then a few years later, I found out about Bruce Cleveland, who wrote the great book, Traversing the Traction Gap, and talked about category design and introduced PlayBigger, who he partnered with. Now, over at PlayBigger, you have some legendary Silicon Valley execs, uh, such as uh, Dave Peterson, Christopher Lockhead, and also Kevin Maney. And they essentially went on a quest to pull a lot of data and study category design. Like, is there something there? And the fact of the matter is the greatest companies on planet Earth all designed their own category. If you look at Netflix with streaming videos or five hour energy drink with the energy shot, look at Steve Jobs when he introduced the iPad and created the tablets, right? The greatest companies on, on Earth with just an obscene competitive advantage they did category design so i wanted to talk to al about category design because there's so many questions that i had along with many others who are into category design that only he could answer so this is my interview with al ramadan of play bigger check the show notes we have some great links in there for you for some uh, wonderful resources that you can check out so without further ado here's my interview with al ramadan of play bigger Hey everyone, Omar M. Khatib here with another fantastic episode of the Mind Loom book show. And this time I have another author who I'm a big fan of, uh, somebody who's really hard to get a hold of, but we he was very gracious enough to sort of carve out some time and join us. That's Al Ramadan, who uh, comes from the Play Bigger agency who published this fantastic book that I reviewed uh, not too long ago called Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. And I am also the proud owner of their second book, which you can only get on their website called Lightning Strike Mobilization Kit, a field guide to strike execution. I'll leave a link to that in the show notes. So Al, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Great, Omar. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Fantastic. Well, look, you know, there's a lot of people in the med tech world and especially in the startup world around growth who have really gravitated to this concept that you and your team have sort of pioneered and popularized many years ago, which is category design and creation. But before we jump into, you know, for those of our audience who, who are just learning about you now, can you give us like a quick one minute highlight of, of who you are, your background and, 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 and your, your origin story? Yeah, yeah, more than happy to. Uh, so I'm an Aussie, don't hold that against me. Uh, born in Australia. Uh, I was, uh, I graduated computer science and applied math. So I'm sort of like a tech guy in that sense, um, and worked my way through industry with BHP, which was a big steel company. I was doing a whole bunch of mathematical modeling for them, then ended up running the technology organization for the 95 America's Cup campaign. 
came to America, and then that's the story since. I, I am an American citizen. I attended Stanford, uh, their executive program for a growing company. I was the founder of a company called Quokka Sports, which was uh, one of the real pioneers in digital sports media, and then spent almost 10 years with both Macromedia and Adobe, uh, helping them with uh, the rich internet applications category, and then spun out and created a new firm we call Playbega, it's a category design firm. And with my co-authors and props to them, Christopher Lockhead, Kevin Maney, and Dave Peterson also wrote the book, Fabulous People in their own right. And um, we, we kind of captured what was at that time, sort of 20 years of business experience into a methodology we now call category design. And then of course, Play Bigger, the, 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 the company has completed almost 50 category designs now. And so we have sort of evolved the practice of category design a little bit and happy to answer any questions you might have, have on, on the topic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on, 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 on the basics of the category design, because for one, for those who are listening, you have to go buy the book. This show is not a, a replacement to, to that knowledge. Knowledge is meant to be hard and you have to earn it, but just, you know, maybe a quick definition, like what does that mean to design a category and why is that such an important thing? Look, um, the way we think and the way our brain is wired uh, in today's world requires us to, you know, basically parse 3,000 different marketing messages that come at us every day. And it turns out that our brains have naturally evolved biases to uh, select those messages that are useful uh, or appropriate or work for me. Um, mm -hmm. And the way that works is, is that they look for patterns of problems that I'm experiencing. And once you've found the problem that you're experiencing, i.e. My, my, one of my favorite stories is I have a bunch of friends from Australia. They're coming out to go skiing with us. We have a place in Tahoe. They'll call me from the airport, say, hey, Al, at the airport, really stoked to get up there and go skiing. Uh, what, sort of car, what sort of car should I get? Because I know it's snowing up there. And I'll say, just grab an SUV and you should be just fine. Call me if you need anything. And, and they get there and we have fun. We had that whole conversation right there, human conversation. Hey, I need this. What should I get? And we didn't even talk about a product. Not one single sentence was a product. It was about a category called an SUV. You automatically, and I knew what we were talking about, right? So that's how our brains actually function. They're these little filing cabinets in our head, which have solution for typ typical types of problems. So category design is about designing those categories, those containers that are in our minds, right? That's the brain science piece of thing. And then the, the, the other side of that is there's a process to do that. And it's outlined in, in the book from chapters four through chapters eight, I think it is. We go into great detail about what you need to do, the steps you need to take to design one of those categories and then launch the category. And those folks on this show will be familiar with launching products. And of course, that's a piece of the category, the product, the company, and the category have to come in the magic triangle, as we call it. But once you've, once you've got used to launching products, it'll be natural for you to launch a category as well. Absolutely. Now, the magic triangle is a very important thing that I've often stressed, and I've at least stressed it myself, because if you don't think about that, you often put category design as like, oh, we'll do it later, and that later never happens, right? Tell the audience, like, 
what is this magic triangle and why is that so important to do those three things all at the same time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's definitely something that we've spent a lot of time researching. And I think there's 120 something interviews in the book from some of the greatest category design in history. Very well and, researched, by the way. That was something that stood out to me. Most marketing books are a lot of fluff. This is a very well researched data driven book. I thank just you, had to say you. that. So, sorry, yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a data-driven guy. And so, and so, so are my partners. And so uh, we definitely wanted to, and in, in, in those, in those interviews what, with these leaders from Steve Jobs to Bezos to everybody else, we realized there was a pattern happening, which was they were focused on actually three things at the same time, not one. Mm -hmm. And so there was the product design piece, you know, the iPhone as an example, launched in 2007, fundamentally different to anything that had come before it. It was made of glass, it had touchscreen, had not just a phone and text, but it had 18 or 20 applications at the time. That's the product design side of the equation, right? And has to be, has to be brilliant. Uh, the company design piece of the equation uh, also has to be brilliant. So how do you bring that to market? What ecosystem do you use? How, how do you get the product distributed? In the case of Apple, they had to create the Apple stores. Uh, because, you know, they knew people were going to have some challenges with this new device and devices, and they need to be able to support that. That's the company design side. Uh, and then the third piece was the category design science. And, and when Jobs himself launched the iPod, he got up on stage, and you can look it up yourself if you want to. Uh, he, he stood up and he said, look, we got a problem. It's a big problem. On one side, we've got this thing called a laptop. Love it. It's got a keyboard great screen, blah, blah, blah. It's not really convenient to use. I don't really like sitting on a couch with it. It's kind of dumb. It's awkward. And then on the other side, I got this incredible thing called the phone, but it, you know, it's pretty small, hard to do, do a lot of things and watch media and all that sort of stuff on it. So there's a gap in the middle. And today I'm announcing this new revolutionary thing called the iPod. And that was one of the three great categories he built other than, you know, sort of music with iTunes and the iPhone itself. And so that's what great category designers do. And they paired it with, in his particular case, he paired it with a great product as well as a great go-to-market strategy. Absolutely. And, and with the iPad, what was funny is that I, I remember so many people, including myself, who came out and said, this is the dumbest thing ever. Who will use this? And I was, I was wrong. So many people were wrong. And I think that's the interesting thing about it. And we see, once you, get, once you see this idea of category design, you really can't unsee it. And especially even now, you know, pay attention to my behavior after reading your book, you're absolutely right that that's how we think about categories. And the example you use when your talks is like going to the grocery store, right? Unless there's a very specific brand, and even if there is a specific brand, like when I go to the grocery store, there's, you know, I love Dogfish Head and uh, Lagunitas for my beer, but I don't go to the grocery store and I think I need to buy Dogfish Head beer. The first thing I think of, and I was watching my language when I would talk to my wife and what I would think is that I need to get beer. And no matter how much I even consciously tried to focus on, like, no, no, let me focus on the part because I already know what I want. It's always the category, right? Because yeah. I'm trying to solve for a problem, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, and there's a category of beers called IPAs, which, which are a subcategory of beers. And to your point that, you know, and the, 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 the cool thing about um, the story about going to the supermarket is first of all, they've been around for a long time, hundreds of years. Secondly, there are aisles dedicated to categories of things. One of them is called frozen foods or the frozen food aisle. Turns out in 1920, there wasn't any frozen foods. And it took the genius of Clarence Birdseye to talk about, hey, we got to get some 
frozen foods here because you know not everyone lives within five miles of the supermarket so etc cetera, etc cetera. and so we just take for granted that you know sort of supermarkets have been like that and there's these aisles and above the aisles that the category names and everything else that's actually a great example of why categories matter because you go into a supermarket with a list in your hand which is the problem in this case okay i'm looking for this type of product or i've got this problem I need, I need a solution and you use that navigation device to get to the area where you start choosing products and you aren't choosing products until you are in five feet of the answer right the whole time you've been navigating to that. And so if you control the navigation dialogue, another great example is energy shot. Think about That's that. My, my favorite one, by the way. Think about that for a second, right? Same ingredients essentially as Red Bull and, and, um, and Coke, Coca-Cola uh, in, in a teeny little thing. And the insight that uh, Manoa had was, you know, you don't have to drink a whole can of this stuff to get the same kind of impact. He called it a new thing called an energy shot. And where is it? It's not in the drink aisle. It's on the checkout. And so, you know, it fundamentally changed the way you think about that thing. It's like, oh, yeah, I should grab a couple of shots on the way out. Right. You didn't go to a drink aisle. You went to the, and so that's all part of the process here is uh, he was a brilliant category designer as well. Absolutely. And I, that was the reason why that's one of my favorite ones to, 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 that I go to when I speak to founders and even with my own companies that, it was such a radically different thing because not only it was different in size and location, but it was also unrefrigerated. So there's so many things where it's like, I think naturally as a marketer, you say, well, we need to make sure it's discoverable and people need to know what it is. And sometimes I think that's the key in category design is that you don't want to be too different for the sake of being different, but if it's different in a very guerrilla marketing sort of jujitsu way of positioning, and I think Al Rees would, would appreciate that, it makes so much sense. Now, here's an interesting question for you that I feel that many people ask or we, we've asked, but we, you know, we don't have the luxury of speaking to, to one of the experts and fathers of this, but today we are. When is it too early to start thinking about or executing on category design as a startup? What, what are some things where if you heard it, you say, do not do category design now? Yeah. <clears throat> so if you don't understand what problem you solve, don't do category design. That's the dumbest thing of all time. Uh, start with getting a really good insight into the problem that you are thinking you should solve or that you're driven to solve. Most founders are just, they wake up in the middle of the night and they're like, oh my gosh, I can see a problem in the world that I just have to fix. And it drives them, it motivates them. And we call that a founding insight. Sometimes they're a technical insight. Hey, I've got some technology that I think can solve a big class of problems. Sometimes it's a market insight, but it's an insight. So if you don't have that, category design is not going to get you there. The second thing I'd say is, and it's sort of allied to that, is you have to kind of have a, enough of product market fit to understand who has that problem, right? Otherwise, who are you going to talk to? Everyone in the world? Well, that's pretty expensive, right? And so one of our favorite companies is a company called Clear Metal or Clear Metal. And um, we first met them, three kids out of Stanford, brilliant engineers. And um, they, they, the company name was called Tilikin and it was AI for shipping. It's a great story. And um, as, we, as we sort of poked around at what it was they were doing, it turns out that they've built this incredible technology engine that uh, is able to track containers all around the world at any time. And can tell you, hey, there's a storm in the North Pacific, therefore this shipment's going to be later. 
or hey, things are going good, they're going to be ahead of schedule. And so they created what they thought was AI for shipping. We, we, we quickly changed the name of the company from Tilikan to Clear Metal. I'm going to say we, the exec team there and, and us as consult, consulting category designers, changed it to Clear Metal because they're moving metal around the world. And secondly, we came up with a category called Predictive Logistics. It was focused at the shipping industry. There was this idea that you could predict, A, where you put the empty ones, which is really hard, apparently, and B, when the stuff's going to arrive. <clears throat> And that was great for a couple of years. And it was the early stage of that category. And this story gets better because what happened was the customers of the shippers came directly to us and started saying, hey, <laughs> uh, Mr. I'm, I'm Walmart or I'm Costco or whatever else. I'd really like to track my containers, not only on the, on, on the water, but also on the road, on rail and whatever else, right? And so as the product market fit changed, i.e. the customer base changed, as it was Walmart and Costco and, you know, big retailers and, the, and wholesalers, um, so the category needed to change because the problem that you solved whilst based on the same technology was different. And we ultimately evolved the category to continuous delivery or continuous delivery experience. And so focused on the, the large retailers. And, you know, they're going gangbusters and, and doing a great job. So that's a great sort of, that was over a period of like seven years. And it shows you that they had enough of a product in the early days. You, you come up with your sort of null hypothesis for what the initial category is. You, you may morph it if necessary, if your customer base or the product changes dramatically or the problem you're solving changes dramatically. And it can evolve over a period of, 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 of uh, you know, a few years. Got it. Yeah, and that's really inspiring to hear. And it's such an interesting way to look at it, especially in terms of, how that category was able to sort of help pivot and evolve the business. So my next question for you is that one of the things about category design is that so much of it is hinged on language. And I think that, that many people like copy, I was telling, talking to Bruce Cleveland, who's CMO over at uh, C3 AI, again, someone who introduced me to your work. And he, he said that he's like, yeah, copywriting is kind of becoming a lost art, right? And so there's this lost focus on language, but language has become even more important today with social media and everything. I mean, we live in America. This is why the First Amendment is so important, because if you get to control what people say, you control what they think. Yeah. So what about the language that comes along with category design? Is it best to use simple language? Is it best to use novel language? Like, What, what, is, your, what is your advice to founders who are listening to this about the language they should use? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I agree with Bruce. It's definitely uh, one of the areas that can and, and needs uh, sort of more resources. But what I'd say is this, is to be a great and legendary category designer, you need to be the evangelist for the problem. Mm. Let's start there. Let's start right there. So don't talk about the features of your product. Features don't move people. Stories do. And if you speak to the story of the problem, the example I gave you, which is my friends coming in from Australia, having to get to Tahoe in the snow, that's a perfect example. They know they have this problem and then I'm able to solve it for them, right? And it's called an SUV was the solution in that particular case. So first of all, you have to be the evangelist for the problem. The second thing is it has to be an emotional conversation. Our brains have these filters now where we, we, they call it the brain science and Kahneman and many of the great authors of behavioral economics and things like that talk about this filter that we have that we make these decisions no longer based on facts. There's too many. There's 3,000 messages is coming in a day. You can't look at the feature benefits of 3,000 of these things and try and make a decision. That's not what your brain does. 
has all of these biases and the biases are cutting things out, right? And the way that we make decisions as humans is based on instincts, not on, on, on facts, right? And so, so to close the loop on your question, you have to be able to write a story about the problem that's emotional that gets past all my brain biases. Otherwise, you're not going to get to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it makes so much sense. I mean, great. Uh, you know, neuroscience based markets, they all speak about that. They talk about getting past the primitive or the lizard brain, because if you can't pass that, you, you don't pass the filter to get to the part of the brain, which actually evaluates features and, and, and benefits and, and whatnot. But by the time you're there, you've already made that decision, right? Yes, yes, yes. That's absolutely right. And it, it's brilliant. They have, they talk about, you know, I think some of the, the, the scientists talk about there's over 50 of these biases that our brains use. They're basically shortcuts to get rid of stuff, right? And there's four of them that we tend to use as category designers a lot. One of them is called the anchoring bias. There's a conformity bias and a number of others. And the, 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 these um, biases have a place in time as well. So when you first launching the, the, the category, you're going to launch based on what we call the anchoring bias, right? Mm -hmm. So it basically says, if you and I are negotiating over a car and I say, how much is it? And you say it's 5,000 bucks, then you've anchored the conversation at 5,000. It's not like 50 or 500, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to anchor the conversation around the problem as you see it. Then groupthink kicks in, which is like, okay, well then if Omar believes that, then man, I should probably take a look at that, right? So again, that's not a logical, it, it, it's, it's an emotional reaction. It's like, okay, he's doing it. And then my, my favorite one is the choice supportive, which is the third important bias, which is once people choose a king, they always believe it's better. And my wife loves Toyota cars. And I say to her often like, hey, the Honda, the new, the new hybrid Honda's out. It's much better than Toyota. She's like, you know, babe, it looks really nice, but I really like my Toyota. And then finally conformity, which is, you know, sort of we have to behave similar to others in the group. So if I'm the only person using a fax and you're all using emails, you will look at me going like, dude, you're old school, man. You really need to conform or you really need to move. So these are just biases that show up in how we, are, we as humans behave. And your point's exactly right. Before you even get to a feature, you have to get through those biases. And if you don't get through those, feature, those biases, you're, you're going to go nowhere. You might have the best product in the world but if you don't get to the people who have that problem in a way that kind of moves them, you're done. Yeah. And it makes complete sense. You know, let me, let me dig into that. Cause this is, this is another, again, for, for those who are trying to create categories and everything, this is the other big problem that happens, which is, okay, you look at the, an existing category. Everybody knows now, like you don't want to be second to that party, let alone third or fourth or fifth. Right. And so there's this question. And I think it is, is definitely situational, but I'm wondering, maybe it's not. You have, you have two choices as a startup. You look at an existing category and say, okay, we're gonna take this existing category of let's say a hundred different companies and we're going to hyper-focus it down to something. And probably the easiest example of that is, let's just say the, I don't know, let's say it's a bunch of uh, billing companies for law firms. We hyper-focus that down to you know, legal billing via AI or AI driven legal billing, right? So you just add AI to it, but now you focused it down. Are you better off going that route? Because now you have some anchoring, you have some familiarity, but novelty associated with something that's familiar, or do you take the risk of creating something completely different as a category, right? Does that make sense? 
It does. It does. I, I understand the question. And, and this is at the crux in a lot of ways of what category designers have to do. Okay. And, and most of the times we get called in, well, there will be some that sort of said, hey, I'm too broad and I need to narrow down. And I totally respect that. Uh, more often than not, it's the opposite to that, which is they have a solution that they've figured out that really appeals to us, solves a problem for a particular use case. And then they want to sort of expand. So you can go either way, but uh, we see more of the expansion than the, than, than the contraction. Um, having said that, the, the category potential, as we call it, which is highly correlated with the TAM, hmm. those two things, those concepts are very similar. Um, that, that is related to the problem scope. So the scope of the problem is the most important thing to get clear about. So how big is this problem in terms of the, 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 the monetary savings or the societal savings or the human savings that can come by solving this problem. That's sort of part one. And then part two is how many people have it? That's the problem scope, right? That's the, and, and that's what defines the category potential and the TAM. And a lot of people go to exactly what you said. I'm just going to put AI on the end of this thing. It's like, well, that's just a tool, man. Like when we met with Qualtrics the first time, love these guys. Unbelievably stunning example of category execution, right? And when we first met them, they were a market research firm. They were a survey firm. They were the best. And some people called them Survey Monkey on steroids when we first met, right? And But actually, when you get underneath that, it's like, sure, market research was the tool and surveys was the tool, but you were trying to get something else, an answer to something. And it was generally an answer to why something was happening as opposed to what happened. You know, United Airlines, plane was on time, but customer was pissed off, something's wrong. Why was that, right? And it turns out that it was the experience that was being delivered by companies was what they were trying to figure out or what they were able to measure. They created a new form of data called X data, experience data, and they were, to measure, they were able to measure customers' experience, employee experience, product experience, and brand experience. They called that the four pillars or the four corners of the enterprise, and that experience management was actually the category they were in. So they just went from market research whoop, to XM or experience management. That category is now considered to be 60, 70, 80 billion. Whereas the original category that they thought they were in, market research was two or three. Interesting. Right? I, and it's because they focused on the problem, the actual problem they were really solving, not what technology they were using, what problem they saw, what business problem or human problem or societal problem. Interesting. I think by focusing on that problem, that automatically expands that total addressable market, right? And it makes oh. complete sense. And I believe, and again, I'll, I'll I'll leave it in the show notes for me. Was Qualtrics was that the one that that in their S S one filing to go public, they they had a whole thing on category design, correct? Yeah. Well, they just talked about. I mean, if you read their S one, I mean, it's like it's brilliant, and that team is you know of the of the highest level we've ever seen executing. And the, the whole story starts out with, as you know, we're living in an experienced economy. You start with that. And so if you're not experienced in measuring, essentially the problem set up was if you're not in measuring the experience in the experience economy, what economy are you in? Right. <laughs> yeah. Right? And the answer is like, oh shit, I need to be measuring experiences real fast because I know I'm an experienced guy. I need experience management. 
boom, done. You didn't even, they didn't even talk about features, bits and bytes, nothing. They just went straight at it. And every C-level executive, and Ryan did a brilliant job. He, he talked about, we always see in, our, in point of view is this thing called a boogeyman, which is the thing that makes you go boo or the jump makes you jump. And his boogeyman was, um, it's probably not PC now, boogie person, boogie thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So no, I grew, I'm, I'm old enough to say that I was scared when I was a kid about the boogeyman under my bed. Okay. <laughs> like, you okay. know, well, like a monster that's about to pop out and, and, yeah. and that and, guy. Or that thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So in the case, in the case of uh, Ryan, it was this thing called the experience gap. And I remember him on the first day of their strike, he had this big slide up and it said, all the C-level execs in this room think that they're delivering a superior experience to their customers 80% of the time. On the other side, he said, and we've spoken to most of those customers and they think that's true 8% of the time. That there is the experience gap. And if you don't close that gap, solve that problem, you're not going to have any customers. It's an existential threat to your business. Like, do you get that? And it's the same for employees. If employees, you know, they think the employees are real stoked, they're not happy, you don't have a business, right? Same with your product. It's not working. Same with your brand. So he, he, he went on this, 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 this drive. He was the evangelist for this problem called the, the experience gap. And it scared the crap out of every executive in the world because he was, A, he was right, and B, holy smokes, if I don't get that sorted out, and so I need to capture the X data or the experience data, and of course, their platform was the number one and, and, and so on and so forth. So that's, that's a great example of what the, what the greats do. Yeah, and it makes so much sense. And it's, what's funny is, and going back to your original advice as to like, not only language, but you said that you have to be the evangelist of the problem, because if you are, you get closer to the source of truth, which is an emotional one, right? And it's a bigger thing. And I think even I, I can't remember the name of the name of the, per, of the person, but the, uh, there was a gentleman who wrote about, I guess, myopic mar marketing, which is like, if you're selling, you know, a screw that goes in the wall. You're not really selling the screw. You're selling the shelf that goes on that screw. And it's not the shelf, it's the books. And, and you sort of start scoping out. And what you're really selling is how somebody's going to feel when their spouse comes in and sees that, like they put this nice shelf up and everything's clean. Yeah. And I think that's what you're talking about here, which is, you know, we get so focused, especially in the world of tech on the product and the features and the benefits and everything that we don't try and have an emotional uh, uh, evangelism of what that big problem is. Because yeah. once we do that, we get closer to the bigger thing that the customers try and solve, which is your, your product or service is, is kind of like one part of that, right? And so that makes, that makes complete sense. And I think that- Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, think about this just in human terms again. Huh. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm active, I'm an active sports person. And, uh, you know, I was in my doctor's office the other day and I said to her, I said, look, I really got this really sore knee or something weird's going on. I'm learning how to do this kiteboarding thing and it's hard and it puts different strains on my body. And she's like, okay, well, tell me about it, you know? And, 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 and uh, I said, well, it hurts when I do this. And she said, oh, what about when you do that? It's like, yeah, a little bit on that side. What about when you do this and so on and so forth? She's diagnosing the problem. Right. Mm. She's going through the whole thing. Stack top. She's not saying, well, your ACL, your MCL, you need blah, blah, blah. None of that. She's like, let me see this. So what happens as a human when a doctor does that for you? You go, you feel well, if she asks all those questions, she knows the answer. Mm. Right. 
And so if you're the evangelist for the problem, the experience gap, and it has these ramifications, and you can talk about that problem in great detail and with ultimate precision, what are people going to do? They're going to assume you have the answer, just a human nature. And so if you talk about solutions, i.e. MCL could be torn, or I've got an MCL repair before we've even figured out what's wrong with my knee, you're wasting your time. Hmm. You don't build trust. You don't build an emotional reaction from the, the, the target customers who do have that problem. That, that makes so much sense. And I, I got to hand it to you. Like, um, this is probably the best interview I've had where someone has used analogies in a very uh, effective way. Because I think most people use analogies the wrong way. But this has been so helpful just to kind of understand more specifically why do things a certain way when it comes to category design. And then more importantly, the kind of impact and influence it has. Yeah. Now, you know, again, like to be, you know, uh, 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 gracious with your time, We're, we got to wrap up soon because I know you, you got to go, but I have a little bit more of a tactical question because I know that <laughs> at least the readers of your book have spoken to me about this and asked, and I'm like, okay, I'll ask this question. Okay. <laughs> Bear with me. So yeah. in every, in every organization, it's so important for someone to own category design right? Obviously, it's something that needs to be evangelized by, by leadership, you know, the founder or the CEO, but somebody's got to do the, the, the work, right? And usually that's the marketing person. You know, in your book, specifically on page 94, you talk about packaging the work, right? And there's these, all these items that are very important that you have to do interviews with, get information from. I'm going to run through that, you know, short list, I think of six or seven things. And the question we have for you is which of these things are the are, are most often missed or done poorly or forgotten about, right? And so here's that list. So in that package, there's the category landscape, which is what category you create and what would it look like and where it fits. The category ecosystem, so customers, competitors, developers, everybody within that ecosystem. Frodo's, and for those who are new, Frodo stands for, for from and to, so you create a journey of where the customers are, where you're taking them from, and where you're going to try to take, take them to. Category name and description in the final version of that. The case for the new category. So this is where you sort of write out that narrative. And the final thing is sort of an early draft gate plan, which is a sketch of how the company can create and dominate that category. And again, that's kind of why I went and purchased a lightning strike mobilization kit from the website. Again, I'll leave a link for the show notes. But of those areas, where do you feel most startups make make a, a sort of a mistake or, or they just they overlook there is there a gap anywhere in there yeah so a couple of good questions in there let's let's tack, let's unpack it a little bit here so first thing is is you ask the question of like who does this of all of the category designs especially the ones that have been incredibly successful the owner is the ceo and she or he is absolutely front and center on solving this problem, right? Mm -hmm. And she or he is front and center being the evangelist for this problem in the marketplace. And so that's sort of part number one. Having said that, um, the process itself goes through seven or eight different steps or phases to get to what we call the lightning strike, which is when think of it as the launch for the category, the launch for the problem. Um, and each one of those steps have different actors or players showing up, right? The CEO is definitely across the top. The exec team's definitely in there. But as you get further and further through the process towards the, if you like, the launch side, the CMO generally takes a pretty big 
uh, role in this. Mm. The early stages of the, the process, which is identification of the problem, naming the category, sort of starting to get the narrative or the point of view, as we call it, right, defining the blueprint, defining the ecosystem, that generally gets organized by a person we call a category designer. Mm. It's a new it's a new role inside of companies. I, we've seen category designers come from the marketing organization. We've seen probably the best ones come from product marketing or product management, actually, now on the product side of the organization. We've also seen it come from sales and sales enablement. So that person, he or she, is, is, is essentially the linchpin for the category design process from start to finish and essentially works for the CEO. So that's on the, on, on the, on the people side. And everyone has to be pre present. If you believe the magic triangle product and you know product company and category, then clearly the product side, the sales side of the organization or distribution has to be involved. On, on the actual sort of steps or deliverables, you talked about sort of the blueprint, the ecosystem, the photos, the category name, the case for the category, the point of view, which is the problem, and the lightning strike, those things there. Um, what we see as the biggest fault or mistake that people make is they rush to the category name. Mm. I want it to be ERX. It's like, okay, that's cool. I love ERX, whatever that means. But like, what's the problem? And they forget that the first step, the first step is to identify the problem and understand who has that problem. That is the most challenging part of category design in our experience. And in our projects, which might go for four, five, six months, the first month or two, is dedicated to getting at the problem, right? And so if we do that and we're experts at it, then you probably need to spend more time on it than that because when you're trying to get at what's really the problem here that you're solving is actually a really, really hard thing to do. And it requires cycles to go around a little bit and it requires people to really think about things differently. You think about Ryan and Jared and the team at, at Qualtrics, their brilliance was they recognized that, yes, yeah, sure, market research was where we were, the from, so the left-hand side of the Frodo, but we didn't have the two articulated. And that was where, when they got into it, they realized, oh, my gosh, no, we're measuring experiences. That's actually what we're doing. That's the primary use case, and that's the thing we need to drive. So that problem space and, and, and problem exploration is a really important thing. And you said something too, really important at this just a little earlier, which was as a general rule, when you do that kind of work, the problem scope tends to be bigger than you think, right? And so market research was used by Jimmy and Betty in the basement of an organization. And the fastest trip to the basement was going to the CEO and say, hey, you wanna talk about some market research? He'd say, yeah, I'd love to. Go talk to Jimmy and Betty, right? And now you walk in the front door and say, hey, you know, you got this experience gap. Do you want to talk about it? And like, yeah, you sit in my office and keep talking to me, right? And so that problem space and the scope just expanded dramatically, tenfold, maybe more, right? And so invest that time on the problem space. And then you can get to, you know, the, the, the blueprint or the, the landscape of what is the solution for that category. We call it a blueprint. And it's for the entire category, not just for the company. Um, and then you can get to the ecosystem to the extent that that's important for you. Certainly in the medical industry, holy smokes, we did some work with Castlight Health many years ago, many years ago, and created a category called enterprise healthcare management. And 
wow, did we ever get to understand the medical ecosystem more than we've <laughs> ever wanted to in our lives? Yeah. Right? And then you can get to the category name, the point of view and the lightning strike. So that's that's our, our counsel and coaching. And the final thing I'd say about this is, look, you're going to get put in a category. Mm-hmm. You are. Just look at any of the marketing loom escapes or any of the other landscape diagrams. Someone is putting your company in a box with others. May as well be you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was one of the things I loved uh, in one of your talks is, is, is showing that. And I believe that the, the thing that you showed, and I, I use it in my, in my uh, slides as well, is that if you've never seen a killer whale, right, and you go out to sea and you associate things that you've seen in the past, you see a killer whale and you're like, oh, that's, that looks like a whale. It's a big fish. Yeah, it's a whale. Um, but it looks like it's, it's black and white and lives in the sea. It's a sea panda, right? And so you completely agree with you. And I think even um, the, the greats in public relations say that, either, you know, and, and I think this is why celebrities very early on latched onto social media, because th- if you don't control your narrative, somebody else will, and somebody yeah. else will be very happy to write that narrative. And most yeah. of the time in, in the worlds of startups, yeah. it's going to be your customer. Yeah. You know? yeah. Customers, competitors, influencers, analysts, they're, they're all going to say something, right? And so... Uh, they're all going to put you in some category and, and, and better to better be the one, you know, the other way to say that is, you know, position yourself or be positioned is the other sort of El Reese, oh, I like that. recent trout kind of way to say it. That's how they used to say it back in the day. And, and we agree with them, you know, you've, you've got to be the ones who are defining the category. You're the ones who are the thought leaders for the problem. You're the ones who have the blueprint for the solution. You're the ones who have this powerful, evocative, point of view, which moves people, attaches to the problem in the field, the pain they feel. And as a result, they think you have the solution. Like you get all of that stuff, right? You're going to be incredibly successful. Absolutely. Well, Al, I can't thank you enough for, for spending some time with us. So for everyone who has been listening again, play bigger is the book, make sure you get it. I'll leave a link in the notes. And then for those who have already read play bigger, and they're looking to sort of uh, uh, you know, level up a little bit more the lightning strike mobilization kit. Again, it's a fantastic uh, piece because um, first, it's on really nice paper, but also there's some fantastic frameworks in here to work from. Al, before I, we let you go, what's your last departing uh, uh, thoughts and, and advice to our audience? Be, be an evangelist for the problem. The thing that keeps you up and, and makes you crazy, be that evangelist. Get in front of it. Talk about it. Talk about it until you're blue in the face. You're going to get sick of talking about the problem. But that is where it starts and finishes. Fantastic. Al, thank you so much. Stay on for just a moment. Uh, we'll, we'll chat. And for the audience listening, this has been another episode of the Mind Loom Book Show. Uh, we'll have more authors to come soon. And again, make sure to check out the show notes and be sure to uh, follow Al. I'll make sure I leave some links to his social handles below.